Good morning. Welcome to the show. Hope you guys had a great, great week. Uh, I'm excited about this show, y'all, because uh, I got a chance to meet a guy who, you know, he obviously a very impressive person. Uh, and y'all have been seeing the advertisements. Bernard Tiger Clark Jr., uh, head football coach for Robert Morris University, uh, is a Tampa Bay, Florida native, y'all. He's, he grew up down in that University of South Florida land. But he ended up going down to the University of Miami, played football for the Hurricanes, y'all. Y'all know I don't, I don't interview a lot of Hurricanes. Uh, I think one other person that was a Hurricane that we brought on this show, uh, Dan Ravakovich. But I think he was with Clemson when we talked to him. So, so we don't, we don't, we haven't done the Hurricanes much. But y'all know we like them a little better than we like those Gators. Uh, so, so uh, uh, Tiger's on the show today, and y'all, what an impressive resume he has! Two-time national champion uh, with the Miami Hurricanes in '87 and '89. Was drafted uh, in 1990. Uh, went to the Bengals. Uh, also did some time with the Seahawks. Uh, bad brother. And uh, began his coaching journey, because he's a coach now, uh, at James Madison before moving to Liberty University, coaching linebackers and special teams. And, y'all, the thing I don't want to talk about, and i just going to start talking about it now, because it still hurts me to my heart, but, 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 but Clark likes to talk about it. So, uh, and Clark, I know you're there, and I know you're getting ready to giggle a little bit, but, uh, y'all, this guy... Well, did a lot of damage to our Florida State Seminoles. And y'all know we originate this show out of Tallahassee, so that hurts. In 1988, y'all might remember that Florida State, Deion Sanders and Sammy Smith and all these amazing players, they did a video, y'all. They were ranked number one in the country and did a video called a Seminole Rap. And, man, we were all so excited about the Seminole Rap. The Seminole rap was everything. Now, they weren't great rappers, but it was great entertainment, right? And they were number one in the country coming into that football season. Miami Hurricanes was number six. And we met Miami the first game of the season. Seminole rap in the background. And this guy on this phone, y'all, did damage that day. <laughs> and ultimately... The game came out the 31 to 0 shutout by the Hurricanes. And those of us who are true Seminoles still feel that pain. And so, y'all, I'm going to let Bernard get this out his system right now <laughs> as we welcome him to the Sean Pittman Show. B, how you doing? <laughs> What's up, Sean? How you doing? You, you have me over here dying laughing. It's just one of those situations where, you know, going to the season – similar rap, the whole hype, everything was gone. And the funny thing is, we had just won the national championship the year before. That. That's right. So we felt disrespected. 
and that was the biggest thing about it. we felt disrespected at the fact that they would make them number one and we just finished number one for that season so that was that was the biggest thing that probably was the best feeling was the fact that we had been ranked number six and they were ranked number one and here we are going in thinking they're going to win the national championship we were just the defending champions so that's where the kind of chip on our shoulders started. And so that's why I finished the way it did. But it, it was a great game. You guys still had a great season. You know, we had a season where a fumble was called, a phantom fumble was called. I won't say the team we played at the time because okay. probably the same equal hatred between the Gators and them. That's right. You know, <laughs> around, the, around the same. So it's one of those situations where we had a phantom fumble. And we didn't win the next championship. We wanted the next year. But the good thing about it, like I said, it was just more about we have so much respect. It's like a respectful hate when it comes to Florida State. We have so much respect for the team and the guys they had that for them to be ranked ahead of us after we win the national championship was just kind of a kick in the face to us. Hey, we are the Seminoles of Florida State. We know we're good, some say we're great. Our goal is simple, best in the land. Rockin' to the beat of the Martin Chiefs band. On Saturday night, we'll strut our stuff. The show the nation, the nose are tough. We can work real hard to get where we at. So we're having fun doing the Seminole rap. Sam and I love to run. Just give me the ball and I'll get the job done. Cause I'm six foot two, weigh 224. Just give me the ball and watch me score. Run a 9-400, turn on a dime, get in my way, and it's power time. But I don't want to brag about this and that. I just want to do the Seminole rap. Well, listen, man, I, I enjoyed sitting talking to you about some of that. And, and again, special congratulations on being brought into the, the Orange Bowl Hall of Fame. Uh, what a great representation uh, of you and your team and your time. Uh, and I just enjoyed your, your acceptance speech at the coaches' luncheon. Uh, man, what a, what a great personality and a man you are. Great family. Uh, how did it feel to uh, be on the field that night uh, in the middle of that Tennessee-Clemson game and holding up that amazing statue, uh, just <laughs> reflective over, over your time and your work? Uh, it was actually extremely humbling, Sean, to be totally honest with you. It was exciting and humbling at the same time, you know, because that game, you know, because people talk about, a lot of my friends say you should be put in the Hall of Fame at the University of Miami and some other things, but I know that game, I put in the work to earn that, and that's what made me feel so humble about it because here it is, I don't know how many years later, and they're recognizing the work that I put in back then. It was extremely humbling, extremely exciting, and for my mother to be there, you know, who's 80 years old, and she came down to the field, and my wife was there, and, you know, family and all those other people that were there for the game. It was just one of the most humbling experiences I had. And then to throw the U up and get booed, <laughs> oh, I just felt like it was back at home again. I felt like I was back at home. <laughs> hey, there was a lot of orange in that stadium that night, but, you know, that was one orange not welcome that night. <laughs> At all, at all, you know that it wasn't, the, it wasn't the right color orange. That's the problem. Was it was a it was a different color with some green next to it. Then we probably been in a good shape. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But listen, man, it, you you represent it well, and I I, I know it, it's nice to know people don't that there's a mechanism for people not to forget, right? Because that was yeah. a while ago, but it's still relevant today. Uh, the work that you did. So I was glad that we got a chance to celebrate to, to celebrate you that way, man. And since it's been a while, I do want to ask you what the game of football means to you personally, because it just seems like with everything, everything's sort of being relooked at, right? And uh, and and with the change in football, there's so many changes for the players, for the coaches, you know, for the the governing structure of it. What does football mean to you now? What it meant then? 
Well, let me say this first, Sean. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate that, man. There's no doubt about it. Uh, what the game of football meant to me, it's molded my life. And, and I tell everybody that. And if you've been around the game of football, if you play the game of football, you know exactly what I mean. It has molded my life. It's taught me discipline. It's taught me determination. It taught me trust. Taught me respect and all those things that go along with it. Your parents tell you about, but when you're in that locker room with those guys and they're expecting you to do certain things and they're trusting you to do certain things and expecting you to be honest on that field and do your job and be disciplined to do your job, those are things that it's taught me. It's taken me places I never thought I'd go. You know, I played a game in Japan. You know, the last team I was with was right, the Dallas right. Cowboys. I got cut by the Dallas Cowboys. But I played a team. I played a game in Japan. We played the Houston Oilers at that time. They were the Oilers back then, and we played over there in, in Japan. So it's taken me places I never thought I'd be. I'm living in Pittsburgh right now, really Moon Township, Pennsylvania. Never thought I'd live here in my life. I started my career out at James Madison University, located in Harrisonburg, Virginia. So the places I've gone by being a football coach, it's really molded my life and it's changed me as a person. Yeah, and I. And you know what? I respect that. I receive that. And I think it's so true. I hear it so much from guys who've been able to mature outside in the game and outside the game. You transitioned to become a coach. It took you there. What was the impetus for that? Was it the love of the game or was it your your passion for the guys who were coming after you to just get the the best part of the, the opportunity. I, I say this all the time, Sean. Coaching is probably the furthest thing from my mind. Not something I ever want to do. I tell guys all the time. I played two years in the NFL. The reason I played two and not ten, I was not a student of the game. And what I mean by that is I didn't study the tendencies of offenses the way Ed Reed did, the way Ray Lewis did, the way Warren Sapp did. I just played the game. I'm 6'2". I was 240 at the time. I could run and I could hit. Yeah. And that carried me through high school, carried me through college, <laughs> carried me to the NFL. But at that level, everybody can do that. From the neck down, everybody in that locker room in the NFL should be there because they have the athletic ability to get it done. What separates great guys that last a long time and guys that don't last long like me is the neck up. I wasn't a student of the game. Wow. So when I became a coach, it was strictly a God situation. I gave my life to Christ in May of 96, and I said, God, please give me some guidance on where you want me to go. Because when I was done playing, I became a car salesman. So when I asked God for guidance, he guided me back to football. And the first job I had, Santa Fe Catholic High School in Lakeland, Florida, I walked in there, and I talked to those young men, and the way they looked at me, I said to myself, man, I must have something that they want to hear. That's why I fell in love with it. I'm sure you've heard this saying before. It wasn't about the X's and the O's with me. It was about the Jimmys and the Joes. Yeah, yeah. And Mark Twain has a quote. Mark Twain has a quote that says, the two most important days in your life is the day you're born and the reason and the day you find out why you were born. That was the day I found out why. This is my purpose. Wow. And my purpose isn't about the X's and the O's. This is my purpose about helping these young men grow in so many ways. And I talk about it, and you'll hear us talk about it later on, to help them become better men, better husbands, and better fathers. That's my purpose, and that's why I do this because that's my purpose. Wow. You know, in your speech, you quoted Inky Johnson, uh, and it is a very significant quote, and, and it's why I wanted to bring it up today. You said, be committed to the process without being emotionally attached to the results. T tell us the, the significance of that quote as it relates to your football philosophy as former player and now head coach. Well, the thing that's important is, is you know what the dream is. You know you want to get to the dream. 
at no point can you take a detour on the way to that dream. But on the way to that dream, there's a process of getting to that dream. You have to be committed to that process. Don't take detours and don't get pulled away by the squirrel running by. So make sure you stay along that process. That's the thing that's important. Don't get caught up in the success and the failure of it. It's a process. It's going to work. You know it works. And it works in business. Sean, you know that. It worked in a job you're doing right now. There was right. a process for you to get this radio show. And you weren't deterred from that. There was no detours. Because you knew that the process worked. If I put in the work, if I bust my behind, if I meet the right people, if I say the right things, that's the process. It's no different than in the classroom. You're sitting in that classroom. If I study, if I study the right things, if I get a study partner, if I get a tutor, I'm going to pass this test. It's the process that's important. But you can't get emotionally attached. If it doesn't go the way you want it to go, you can't get upset and get pissed off and blame everybody else. you got to find out, hey, stay on the process. And that's what it means to me, and that's what I talk to the young men here at Robert Morris University about, is staying on the process. Well, I tell you, and you talk about it in terms of kids, but I tell you, when I heard you talking about it, man, there's a lot of adults that need that advice too because we get lost. We get lost in the result. We get lost at focusing in on the result that we forget that was most important is the process to how you're getting to somewhere. Because no mm-hmm. matter what, the, 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 the points between, there's infinite amount of possibilities between point A and point B. So you got to get committed to the process and whatever result is there, right? If you put the work in, it's probably going to be good for you, Right. Uh, So when you start talking about it, it reminded me those things. And I was like, man, this guy, I need to hire him as a life coach. I mean, (laughs) because 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 to be honest, you were so on point, not just with that, but with a couple other things you said. And I and then I learned you wrote a book, this this (laughs) Ascension book. And I texted you about the book and you said, believe it or not, it has nothing to do with football and I got even more interested tell us and so folks listeners it's called Ascension a coach's guide to becoming a better man husband and father Uh, Clark tell us what inspired you to write this book well the first thing that inspired me when I was coaching at Liberty University the thing that stood out to me and I talk about it in the book it wasn't how fast the young men were it wasn't how strong they were it wasn't how much they could do this or how much weight they could lift. It was about how many virgins we had on the team. And it made me start it made me start thinking, man, why are men so focused on sex? Why are men so focused on how many conquests they can have? And I truly believe that teen pregnancy and uh, unwed mothers, all that would change if men changed the way they thought about their bodies. Wow. And how they looked at themselves. And so that's what made me want to write the book. And I give an example in the book, and, and you read it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I give an example of a young man going to a club, a nightclub. He, well, he's going in the club, he sees a beautiful young lady, he goes in, he meets her, and they go back to his apartment. And they go back to his apartment, but right before anything kicks off, she looks at him and says, I forgot to tell my friends that I was leaving with you. Do you mind if I borrow your car to drive back to the club to let them know what's going on? Now you know what I know, you just met this girl. You're not going to let her borrow your car. Right. But you let her borrow your body. What sense does that make? You just put the value of your car over the value of your body. And you're not even thinking about it. You're not even thinking about the fact, I don't know this girl's last name. 
I just met her, but I'm gonna sleep with her. Mm. I don't know this girl's last name. I just met her, but I'm not gonna let her borrow my car. <laughs> it's almost laughable. That. What, it's so funny, it right? <laughs> it's funny, but 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 it's so significant what you're saying there, right? And and trying to really bring more value in things that we that we really well, I, I I don't I don't know how to say it other than that we just don't think about it. But if we thought no, about it, yeah. if we thought about it. It makes so much more sense than what we were thinking before, so it's an absence of the thought, right? Absolutely, no doubt about. It. And that's and that's what made me want to do it because when I saw these young men, there's a young man I don't mention his name in the book, but he played at Liberty. He ended up playing like five or six years in the NFL. He still got married a virgin. And I talked with him. I said, Sam, how do you do it? He said, Coach, I probably think about sex more than you do, but if I give it away, I can't get it back. And that's what really made me write the book. Once you give it away, you can't get it back. Your body is just as precious. Your body is a temple of God, just like that young lady. But the conversations we have with our daughters are not the conversations we have with our sons. The biggest reason I want it is because as a daughter, you tell your daughter, wait until you're married. Your body is precious. It's a temple of God. Don't just give it to any man. Why don't we have those conversations with our sons? Your body is precious. It's a temple of God. Don't just let any woman have your body it's not a tool that you use when it's convenient so that's the biggest reason i wrote it wow that's amazing man talk to us about you say ghosts never die what does that mean well it's exactly what i was saying uh, the toughest part when i got married because i was wild in college you know and i, w- I was wild you know in the nfl you were a hurricane part i <laughs> 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 uh, the, the toughest part when i got married and when i got into a serious relationship is Comparing, you, you naturally do it. That's why God wants us to be virgins when we get married, because you don't know anything outside of your wife if you're a virgin. Well, I had partners, and my wife had partners before we got married, and those ghosts are the women you used to be with. So when the relationship isn't going the way you wanted to go, you start thinking she don't do it like she did it. Mm. He doesn't do it the way he did it. Those are the ghosts that never die. Wow. Because you constantly keep bringing them up, and it's hard to kill those ghosts. And that was the toughest thing for me when I when I got with my wife was to kill those ghosts and wow. not think about this and that, to tell my wife that you're the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. You're the person I want to be with for the rest of my life and trying to kill those ghosts. Talk to us about one of the chapters in the book. And, and listeners, just pull up Ascension. Uh, Bernard Clark Jr., you guys need to get this book. But while they're listening to us, Bernard, talk to us about one of the chapters in the book. It's change is inevitable, but growth is a choice. Talk to us about that. Well, in life, uh, it boils down to, I'm going to get older. I'm going to turn 56 next year with, by the grace of God. I'm going to get older. I can't run as fast as I used to run. I can't lift as much weight as I've lifted before. But am I going to grow with those changes? My metabolism slowed down. Do I continue to eat the way I ate when I was 21 years old? I do understand I'm 55, and I can't burn off the calories like I used to do. When it comes to women, I've grown. I've come to appreciate the beauty of a woman. I've come to do that. But that was growth. That was looking at her in a different light. It's come to looking at women, like I, like I said, with a story about that situation. Another crazy story in the book that I tell people about, and this is why I also change things. 
I'm talking to a group of students in college, and I pose them with a question. And the question is, young ladies, if a man takes you out for three months, and you guys are getting along great, everything's going great, he's taking you to the movies, you guys are laughing together, but every night he's taking you on for the last three months, he's kissed you on the cheek, he hasn't tried anything. What's the first thing that you're going to think? And in unison, in unison, every woman in that room said, He's gay. <laughs> hey, that's what I was thinking. And too, I said, what's the, when you said that, that's said, what I was thinking. What's the, what's the next thing? He's bad in bed. What's the last thing? What's wrong with me? Mm. Well, I've come to a situation where I got to change my mind when it comes to things like that. If a young lady's not giving me her body when I, this is before I got married, I'm going to have a conversation with her. Why haven't we done anything? Or if I'm not, I'm not trying to sleep with her, like you said with the other guy. I'm gonna have a conversation. This is why I'm not. I'm practicing abstinence. I'm trying to make sure my life is on the right track. Change is gonna happen. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. All you're gonna grow with those changes. So as I get older, I can't continue to do the same thing. And I think Malcolm X said this: If you're still doing the same things at 55 that you were doing at 35, there's no growth in your life. And that's the difference. I've changed over those 20 years, but I've also grown with the changes. Yeah. And then, you know, there's reliability on things when you're young that if you don't get what you're saying right now, uh, you're you're in for a rude awakening because change is absolutely (laughs) inevitable. And hopefully in your relationships, there's God in your relationships. There's friendship in your relationships, things that can stand the test of time. Um, so I, I love these lessons uh, and, I, and I love this book. I got to ask you something, though. Have you gotten? Yes. Have you gotten the, the uh, affirmation that you need or might want from the book? Have you heard from people? Have did somebody read it and write you and say, man, this is what I needed to hear in my life? Have you gotten that? Yes, I have. Uh, a few people have talked to me about it. A few people that read it. A couple of my players read it. Say, Coach, I need to start thinking more like that. And so, yeah, I've gotten that affirmation. And think about it, this is what I tell people. There's a reason the book is titled Better Men, Better Husbands, and Better Fathers. Because we can always do better. Yes. And that's the great thing about it. So when a young man reads it or a young lady reads it, they have to understand you're not there yet, but you can always do better. And that's the reason for the time. But I've gotten the affirmation from, and the one person I got the affirmation from was my mom. My mom wow. read the book. My mom loves reading. She sat me down and she's like, baby, you did a great job. Wow. And that was enough <laughs> for me right there because writing a book, come on, man, it's, I'm, I'm a football player. The first thing people think, I'm writing about football. But that's not what God put on my heart. Wow. Listen, bro, thank you, man. For taking the time, I I, I I think the thing I'm learning from this conversation, man, is I got to talk to you more. Um, so so I, I, I so I appreciate meeting you and and I'm gonna enjoy getting to know you and your wife. Uh, this is gonna be amazing. I do want to ask you because we do have a game coming up in a day or so. Uh, TCU and UGA. Uh, what are your thoughts, man? I mean, I I, I got to think you're a little shocked that TCU is there, but maybe you're not because you you know you're now a student of the game. What are your thoughts? Well, to be totally honest with you, I'm not shocked that TCU is there because as the season went on, I watched it. And I tell you one thing: when you talk about life lessons and what does football teach you, watch the quarterback from TCU. 
the determination that young man has to win a football game is absolutely spectacular. I want TCU to win, not because I'm not a Georgia fan, not because I'm a TCU fan. One, because I want to see somebody else different win, but I also want to see a team that puts in the work, that understands the processes of what their coach brought them there, and they haven't been deterred. They didn't win the, the big uh, 12 national championship. I think that's what that's a conference in. They didn't win that. That didn't bother them. Right. They know what their goal is, and they're still trying to get to their dream. And that will be detoured, uh, detoured from their dream, and they're still working at it, and they're still working at the process. That quarterback is probably one of the most determined players I've ever seen. I thought he should have won the Heisman. I thought he should have won it. I'm not saying that because he's is where he is, but he just he just has a lot of the skills and fundamentals and 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 his head, the way his, you can see his head in the game that I just thought deserved to be really rewarded. I'm, I'm with you 100%, and because of how he drove that team, the way he led that team. And again, sometimes the Heisman gets caught up in statistics, and there's so much more when it comes to the Heisman trophy of who's winning and who's not winning. And I think that guy, the determination he shows is unbelievable. I'm not saying Georgia's not a good team, so I don't want any people that are Georgia fans. So I'm saying I want TCU to win because of where this young man has led that team, and it's a team. Yeah. And they've come together as a team. That people talk about the defense they run, they don't like the defense. doesn't matter. They believe in that system that they have at TCU. They believe in what that head coach is doing. And that's the most important thing. You know it and I know it. You're an athlete. You've been around the situation. As long as you're believing in what's going on, those are important things. He has those young men believing that they can be national champions, and that's why I want them to win the game. All right. Well, I know you'll be sitting there watching it like I will. And, man, again, thank you for coming on the show. And we're going to have you back because uh, there's a lot of nuggets in that head of yours that we got to get out. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, out yeah, here. Yeah, and not you just. Be funny. Yeah, the one nugget, the point on my head. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, listen, happy new year. And uh, thanks again for coming on, man. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate it, man. Uh, this is Bernard Clark, Jr., head coach of Robert Morris University, two-time national champion of the University of Miami and MVP and newly inducted into the Orange Bowl Hall of Fame, and you listen to the Sean Pittman Show. All right, we're going to leave it there. Let's listen to Stay With Us for a short Pittman Point right after this. It's time for Pittman's Point on 96.1 Jams. Welcome back to the show, and uh, y'all, we are walking into the second week of 2023, and I think we might have to put our seatbelts on for this one. This year is operating in full force already with change and transition. As y'all know, Nancy Pelosi served as the 52nd Democratic Speaker of the House for two decades and resigned after last year's midterm elections. At least you would know that if you participated in the midterm elections by voting. But that's a whole nother story, because as y'all know, I'm still salty about voter turnout. But we'll we'll handle that another day. Uh, What I do want to make note of is that this past Tuesday, Representative Hakeem Jeffries made history as he was formally announced as leader of the House Democrats. Representative Jeffries is the first black person uh, to ever lead either political party in Congress, and he's also the first person leading House Democrats that was born after the end of World War II. This is not only a groundbreaking achievement, but a generational shift of leadership for all of us to witness. Since 2013, we've watched him represent some of the nation's most iconic black neighborhoods in Brooklyn. He built a national profile during the Trump presidency as a sharp-tongued critic and impeachment prosecutor, while also working with Republicans to pass criminal justice reform legislation. As former chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, Democrats have been preparing Jeffries 
for several years as a potential leader. When Ms. Pelosi stepped down, Jeffries stepped forward. On that vein, my question is, how are we developing the next generation of leaders? In Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he shared a core principle to begin with the end in mind. We know that in all aspects of business and in life, leadership tenure will have an ending. Transition is inevitable. And when the time comes to pass the torch, transition preparation is crucial. When you're in a relay race, the lead runner doesn't stop, hand the baton, and let the new runner pick up speed again. Instead, they run together in transition lane before the next leader takes off running. The previous runner eventually stops running, but is the next runner's greatest cheerleader, shouting their name and encouraging them to go. We don't see enough of that in everyday life. So this week's Pitman Point is simply this. Each of us have significant opportunity to extend what we have learned to the next generation and also build on the gifts and talents they've been given to prepare them to lead as well. We need millennials, Gen X, and everybody equipped and competent to carry the mantle, not only for our future, but y'all, for those of us who are old, to sit down and enjoy retirement years in peace and not have to overextend our time still putting out fires because we didn't do the job of preparing the next generation to do their job. This is our moment, y'all. Let's make it count together. This is The Sean Pittman Show. We'll see you in seven. This is the Sean Pittman Show on 96.1 Jams, Tallahassee's big station. We got this.